Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. I'm really glad you could join me for this conversation today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. Today we're going to be talking about trauma recovery, but through a more spiritual lens. And we're going to be talking about how that lens can help us to experience breakthrough in places in our recovery where we might feel somewhat stuck. I'm joined in this conversation by Dr. Dan Allender, and Dan takes us through an understanding of trauma as living in a place that God didn't design for us to live, but how God redeems our stories and takes us into the purposes that He still has for us. I know a lot of us deal regularly with feelings we'd rather not have, feelings like loneliness, anxiety, rejection, anger. And depression. The ways we've learned to cope with these emotions and with our triggers can help us survive, but they can also eventually keep us stuck in patterns that cause us to feel overwhelmed and threaten our well being and our relationships, especially when it comes to our kids. Over at plusoneparents.org, slash quiz, you can take the what's your stress style quiz and learn more about how your coping strategies might actually be holding you back but how you can also make changes that will get you moving forward. That quiz, again, is at plusoneparents.org slash quiz. One of the things that's very impactful about the way that Dan frames this all up for us is this understanding that trauma is a part of this fallen world. And so we can look at our past and what's harmed us and say, hell no. But then also we have the ability to look at God and how He's redeeming our story and say, heaven, yes. Here's my conversation with Dr. Dan Allender. Dan, I'm delighted to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, Michelle, uh, it's a great honor. I, I, I love your work and I love what you bring to, uh, to a population, to a group of people that is just so central. So thank mm. you. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate that. Dan, as we launch in today, I'd like to talk about some of the spiritual implications of trauma. I think when it comes to working through our trauma, that this is one of the lesser known aspects, but that there's great transformation that can occur when we look at trauma through a spiritual lens. So I wanted to ask if you would start us off by understanding things more from the spiritual perspective and how trauma really can be an indication that we are not living where God had intended us to live. Oh, well, well said. Uh, You know, if we can just start with an obvious sentence, anyone living east of Eden is living in the realm of trauma. You cannot escape it. Um, There are significant events of violation of human dignity that are capital T trauma. But the reality is, and especially in a pandemic, all of us are ensconced. I mean, we're floating and living in in a realm of trauma. So we, we need to step back and to go, look, all trauma 
create some degree of fragmentation. Like I, I cannot tell you how many times I have lost words, lost time, lost keys. Now I, I do that pretty regularly, but I'm doing it like pervasively. Yeah. So fragmentation is just an inevitable part of living in a period or through an experience of trauma. And then numbness. Look, we end up in the middle of trauma feeling very, very, very empty or confused or angry. But the fundamental stance is, I just don't want to feel. I don't have the capacity to feel. And often what that leads to uh, is isolation a kind of hunkering down, turning on Netflix and watching until they remind us that we've watched too many episodes. So, mm -hmm. if we can keep those three words, fragmentation, numbing, and isolation, I mean, Scripture is so profoundly aware and speaks to our human condition. And it brings us categories of what it is to live with trauma. And those happen to be three key words. And that is, when you're in trauma, you know what it is to be an orphan, mm. to be a stranger, and particularly for this good audience, what it means to be a widow or widower. So, to take each a word, an orphan is somebody who has lost name, who has lost a kind of connection to um, those who could and should protect and provide. So, when we're orphans, and again, I'm not talking about literal orphans, but I'm including orphans, mm -hmm. the result for an orphan is a, a kind of hunger can, that can never be satiated. Always having to look more for the next meal and a kind of deprivation that constantly leaves us with, is there enough? Will there ever be enough? And so, that's a spiritual reality of, I, I will never feel like I'm satisfied. But then when you add that scripture speaks about the stranger, the one who doesn't fit, the one who can't seem to get into the in-group, the one who actually is outside of the gate and therefore susceptible to even more abuse and harm. So, when you say, giving the reality of living in a, a fallen world, we're all to some degree orphans, deeply lonely, lost our name, and then add this sense of disconnection. I don't fit. I'm, I'm, I'm somehow bad toxic. I, I don't speak your language. I don't know your mores. That isolation is just so hard to overcome. But if we can come to, I think, one of the hardest, it's the notion of being a widow. You once knew love, and it's gone, um, either through death, uh, through divorce, through abandonment. So, when we start talking about being a widow, it doesn't mean necessarily that a spouse has died, but it means that love has come to an end. And what it leaves is this mark of shame. Somehow there is something undesirable about me. And in that, uh, who would want to be reconnected or connected with me, given that I've got this mark on me? But if we can combine the three, we're talking major effects 
So when you lose a name through divorce, when you don't feel connected in the context of the community you were once in, you feel isolated and you have lost love and not sure that it will ever come back, we are talking about the effects again of fragmentation, of numbing and isolation. And I think the biggest thing about this, Dan, in this experience that becomes such a hindrance for us is this sense that we know perhaps that it's not supposed to be this way, that we feel that it's something is just so devastatingly wrong. And yet it's completely normal at the same time. Everybody is having some degree of this experience. So it's difficult to reconcile where are we at with this experience. And then that can cause us in our relationship with God to say, where, where are you? And to maybe even further than an isolation that maybe we feel it's not supposed to be this way, but does God think that? Do, mm-hmm. Does God really believe it's not supposed to be this way? And I think that is what's so crucial here about understanding the spiritual implications of trauma is, yes, God knows it is not supposed to be this way. Yes. And, and we have been told, unfortunately, often uh, by good-hearted friends and sometimes good-hearted churches, that if we feel like an orphan or a stranger or a widow, if we begin to feel all the effects of trauma, it is a lack of faith. Mm-hmm. You don't trust God if you're struggling. And I, I don't know. I, I There are just times I wonder how in the world that kind of theology gets established when we have a book like the Psalms, Mm -hmm. um, where our cry, um, our confusion, where our anger is actually invited to be directed to God. And it isn't our struggle, it's actually a reflection of our worship. Uh, To me, that's one of the most radical things I can possibly say about the scriptures. They're not merely honest. They're inviting you to bring your deepest struggle to God. So, when you rage at God, most of us at some level think we are apart from God. But the fact is, our rage is actually a part of our worship. Mm. That, if uh, if we taught that, and at some level, even moderately believe that, it would alter a sense of how we bring our brokenness um, to the living God. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's key here is that our emotions very often are going to cause us, though, to run and hide instead of running to the Lord. And where we see over and over in the Bible, people turning to God and saying, Where are you? What are you doing? How long will you wait? As you said, that's what the Psalms are full of. But it is this orientation of, but I know you're there and I'm going to bring you my complaint and I know that you're going to hear me. But bridging the gap when we've been hurt in real life by people, bridging that gap can be extremely difficult. And then the trauma can actually magnify as we do more things that end up injuring our own souls. Yes. So would you share more about like our trauma patterns of response and what that ends up then doing to this damage we've already incurred? Well, again, the question itself, I just want to underscore is just so important. We end up being traumatized by significant events or a season like this whole pandemic. And then 
we not only have the trauma itself, but our response often to the trauma further traumatizes. And so, if we can say it's like a layer upon a layer upon a layer, often our efforts to, for example, um, uh, try to overcome fragmentation, we work harder and we get more exhausted. Instead of being able to step back and say, yes, I'm fragmented. And yes, I'm losing my keys a lot. Uh, And I'm not thinking as I once did. We work harder. And in that, we're not accomplishing a resolve of the fragmentation. We're actually in the exhaustion, creating more fragmentation and in numbing. Um, The fact that we've got so much happening inside of us, when we begin to numb, we often need adjuncts to help us numb. So, we end up watching hours and hours of TV. We spend (laughs) eternities in front of a screen, you know, doom scrolling, Um, or a, a glass or two of wine becomes our way of being able to annul the effects of the day. Again, nothing in and of itself that's like wrong, but when it becomes a pattern of escaping what it is that we aren't willing to even slowly move toward, now we're creating an additional layer of consequences. But the key here, again, is we isolate and we believe at some level, even though we know it's not true, that nobody else is going through quite what we're going through and nobody else would understand. And here again is a complication, you know, especially in the believing community, if we share that we're not doing well, um, there are a lot of good, well-meaning people who offer a verse, uh, who will just say, I'll pray for you, instead of engaging and engaging out of their own heartache into your heartache not just complaining, but actually being able to hold with language the process and the struggle we're in the middle of. If we can't bring language to the reality of what's happening internally, we are flooded and we will be washed away. Dan, what are we grasping for when we are turning to these things to resolve the fragmentation, resolve the isolation, but we might end up just end up making all these things worse. What is it that we're really hungering for? Well, I think at a superficial, when I say superficial, let let me change that word, (laughs) at a surface level, when I say Mm -hmm. surface, I mean, at a skin level, what we're attempting to do is survive. Mm -hmm. And that is an honorable gift. Um, But at a deeper level, I think what we're attempting to do is to find a way back into Eden. That sense of, I've got to find a way to make this work. And oftentimes, we have periods of time where things did work, or it seemed to work better than it's working. So, we hold memory in many ways as a a virtual condemnation of the present. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And so, that actually is nostalgia. Uh, a sense of trying to return home. But if you were actually to go back to that period, uh, it wasn't much of a home to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, for us, I think it's so important to hear this phrase. We were meant for Eden. We will have an Eden even greater than Eden. But in the in-between, in the in-between Eden and the coming new heavens and earth, there will never be a day that we fit that we have the name we will one day have, and that we will know love at the level that we were meant to know. If that's accurate, it's not despairing. 
it actually increases a sense of anticipation as long as you don't condemn yourself for, in some sense, having this internal ache. And I think that's one of the core things that the believing community has a hard time with, that there is meant to be a holy ache for what it is that we do not have now and will one day have. Can we hold that ache and simultaneously be grateful? Um, Can we actually begin to know a very complex joy that is never far from sorrow and tears, Mm -hmm. but also never far from the capacity for laughter. That draws me to think of in the Psalms where it says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, Mm -hmm. that we have to be able to rest in the sense that in this life, we will be brokenhearted, especially if we're really desiring closeness with the Lord. We're desiring closeness in a way that we cannot fully achieve in this life. And I think that's something else, though, that as I look back in my life and look back at some of the traumatic circumstances and I reflect on the things that were good, the Lord is drawing more and more of my attention to what I thought was good never really fully was good. It felt good or it seemed good, but over the long haul, I didn't really have what I thought I had. And that has been helpful for me to just recognize there's nothing I can do to get back to even that kind of good. And there's a better good that is awaiting and that there will be a longing though, that all these longings, and they're, sometimes they're built out of, or they, they rise up out of these temporal experiences. Being lonely, being a single alone person draws me to the understanding that really what I'm longing for is a, is a deeper intimacy, whether that's with a human being or with God, but that I have the ability at least to draw nearer to Him where I may not have the ability to draw nearer to another human being. And I think that's something that a lot of us had to confront and maybe still get, be confronting as it comes to the quarantines and pandemic and all that sort of thing. But that we recognize that that is part of our condition is these broken and longing places that draw us closer to God. But I think that what ends up happening, as you said, though, is in our isolation and in our numbing and all these kinds of things, we are just trying to quiet that ache down. And it really actually, though, can be an indication of things that we are gifted in, that our particular frustrations, our particular angers and passions actually are a bubbling up of some things that God has put inside of us. Oh, so well said. It's, it's, in some sense, the gospel is a stance of reversal. What we think is death, he is able to invite us to mock and to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Again, death is profound. It's a dark aberration. It was never meant to be. And yet, we can look at some of the deepest harm and be able to say, it has given me a taste of hell that I will never suffer. But it's also given me a hunger for heaven that indeed opens my heart to actually living well even better in the present. So, in that sense, you know, we live between past and future in the present. And in that present moment, we've got things we've got to grapple with, you know, and one of the things that 
it's such a difficult category is the issue of shame. Uh, you know, if, if we don't address what trauma has brought us, past sexual abuse, loss of relationship, the confusion of, of how to have handled any form of domestic violence, all that is a toxicity that leaves us to some degree impaled in shame. And that's part of what we're trying to escape. Yeah. Not just loss, not just loneliness, but shame. And there's nothing more clear that is the work of evil than the presence of shame. Because with shame, almost always comes judgment and contempt. Mm -hmm. So, when you begin judging yourself, when you've got judgments about your body, judgments about your relational capacity, judgments about how you parent, judgments about your failures, again, we're invited to grieve because blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But when we give our heart over to contempt, judging, then we're joining unwittingly the kingdom of darkness mm -hmm. with a violence uh, against what God calls precious, and that's ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, it's so, so important to know that trauma isn't just something we suffer from the outside. Trauma is something that often inculcates a, a level of violence toward ourselves with judgments that are wicked and cruel uh, and bear nothing of the kindness of God. That word you said, violence, is so critical because this really is, there's a soul violence that happens when we are harmed by another person. And particularly when we think about abusive situations, that though this person may even actually be out of our lives or out of the relationship, for example, the lies that were spoken over us and that shame that continues, now we are continuing to have those swirl around us that we end up feeling still just as powerless, though this person may not be in our present day-to-day, and what that shame does then is creates a narrative that causes us to not walk in what God has gifted and equipped us with while we are here. So while this is not Eden, while this is not where we were intended to be, God has certain giftings and abilities and uh, proclivities that he's given to us, but shame causes us to, to settle all that down, squash all that down, shrink way back and say, maybe I'm just not cut out for that. Or, I, you know, I just, I don't want to be a burden to anybody or any of the number of different scripts that we might have for why we would not step into a situation where we may feel that stirring of, I've got to, I got to speak up. I've got to say something. And we end up just having an even more tumultuous experience because of this layer blanket really of shame that just is covering us. And I think the thing that I have discovered though, in this process of pulling that blanket off is so many of the very places where I am actually uniquely gifted are places that I believed I had no gift or that I believed I was not worth anything. Yeah. 
Oh, I, I just want to shout. Oh, Michelle, it's so well said. And it's so important to underscore. Look, every one of us uh, has encountered what Proverbs calls death words, words that were intended to kill us. And we need to deeply discern the difference between the person who spoke, their motive, and their desire, did they desire to bring flourishing and blessing and goodness? Or did they desire to humiliate, to denigrate, to condemn? And what we know, particularly about the brain, is that the right hemisphere, again, I I won't bore your audience, but portions of our amygdala have a a heightened sensibility to negative directions or thoughts. And in part, we can just say, hey, look, it's a survival technique. Like if we're aware of negative things, we're going to actually be thinking about how to address them. So for thousands of years, it's probably kept our species a little bit more likely alive than not. Nonetheless, in the middle of trauma, Uh, that kind of negativity becomes so predominant that it begins to obscure almost all the truths that we know from Scripture, we know from other experiences. That's part of the word fragmentation. Mm -hmm. So, we need to be able to come back to who spoke those words. Mm -hmm. What did they want from the word spoken? And again, I'm not saying it's an easy process to pluck those weeds up. But we need to have that sense of how are we caring for the internal world by the language we speak to ourselves and that we hold about ourselves. So, whether that, again, has to do with body image, whether it has to do with the perspective of our desirability in relationship or our gifting, we've got to know that we've got an enemy. A damnable enemy who's deeply committed virtually every second of every day to contempt, to the violence of words against our own soul. So, part of the work of dealing with trauma, current trauma, uh, is to know that we have a history of trauma. And sometimes current trauma opens the door to longer term and many ways more identity-shaping trauma, really from our family of origin. So, Mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, as a therapist, but also as somebody who spends a lot of time in trauma, you know, we've we've traveled to cities where there have been significant uh, disruptions like a hurricane and met with uh, like 50 staff in a church. And out of 50 people that we met with, 46 didn't deal with the trauma of Hurricane Harvey. They dealt with trauma triggered by the trauma they were going through. So, it's really important for us to be able to say, how were we shamed? How were we dealt with when we were 8, 12, 16, 20? Even if it's decades ago, that, shall we say, foundation for being able to see ourselves as gifted, as beloved, as desirable, oftentimes is unaddressed when we've got more current trauma, which sounds like, oh, no, oh, no, you're actually adding another layer of burden. And what I'm Mm -hmm. saying is, until we deal with the past, 
um, we don't have the same ground to be able to deal with the present. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one thing that, that's central to this single mother experience that we are still currently walking through trauma. So there's trauma that we had to deal with in the past, perhaps, that maybe we think that there's sort of this, there's a before and after moment, but it continues for us. And what this looked like for me was that I had been divorced and I had about two years where I felt that the Lord allowed me to honor what I had been through and to say, this was not right. These things that happened and to recognize that I was rescued and to receive that. But then as I began to engage in new relationships and dating and things like that, I started recognizing these patterns of unhealth in the way I was relating to people. And I had to take a moment and go, okay, some of this is me. What am I doing that is furthering this own harm to myself through relationships? And that was where the Lord so gently walked me way back, back before I ever met my ex-husband, back before I was married, way back into childhood to say, this is what you don't know about yourself. This is what you don't know about who I made you to be. This is what you believe that is a lie. And I want to undo all of that because I want you to walk in total freedom. I want you to walk in shalom. Mm. And so, it, but it was recognizing, okay, I've got current trauma that even I am actually uh, inflicting upon myself or allowing to come into my life that I have to address first and say, okay, I'm doing something. I've got to first stand my ground and say, all right, there is something happening. But then for us to go backward though, Dan, is sometimes extremely frightening. And to go back and read those parts of our story feels very threatening, feels perhaps like, what if I get stuck there? What if I, what if I remember things I don't want to remember? There are three words every abuse survivor must hear. God hates abuse. Plus One Parents has released a devotional for abuse survivors called Safe Haven, a devotional for the abused and abandoned. Safe Haven is a biblically-based guide to abuse, giving you the tools that you need to identify it, respond to it, and heal from it. Safe Haven is now available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats, and you can locate a link to purchase your copy down in the show notes. So talk to us about decoding our stories, though, and how we can gently navigate that process so that we have the ability to address trauma, both past and present. Uh, again, you, you put it so brilliantly. I, I just want to go back and go, well, how, how did it work for you? Because <laughs> the, the reality is there has to be a, a sense that my God really wants my whole heart. And if my heart is fragmented and I'm under something of the judgment of my own and evil's contempt, and then I hide it, I bury it, I escape it, but it doesn't go away. There is that sense that there has to be this moment where you turn around, you stop running you turn around and you look at whatever it is you feel like is chasing you. 
And for mm-hmm. me, uh, a lot of that was addressing past sexual abuse and opening the door to beginning to go, I, I can't outrun it. Uh, and it continues to have sort of this, this marred mark within me. And then to know that no one does this quickly. No one does it completely and thoroughly. But there is a sense that in turning to look at how we have come to be who we are, then we can begin to ask the questions that are are there. Where were you, God? Why didn't you protect me? How is it that what I thought was normal in my family is actually deeply aberrant, Mm -hmm. so contrary to what a good mother or a good father was meant to be? Again, not blaming, but simply saying, this is the context for me to have come into something of an awareness of myself. Now, can I tell the truth? I mean, this may sound too simplistic. Can I tell the truth? And the answer is, um, I don't tell the truth that much. But if I can begin to tell a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, it is the surprising and kindness of God. Romans 2 verse 4 says, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So, in that sense, we never repent for having been sexually abused. We never repent for being harmed by a parent. But what we can begin to do is to say, we have all handled our heartache often by a flight from God and a flight from reality, a flight from truth. Can we now begin to say, God invites me to turn and take him on? Uh, to be as angry, to be as hurt, to be as confused as we know ourselves to be, as I said earlier, he calls that worship. Now, in taking him on, when I say the phrase, it it may sound terrifying, but he'll take you on, Mm -hmm. but not as you would think. No. Not Not with contempt, not with disappointment. He'll take you on to show you the God self that he is. And in that sense, you you begin to get a sense of, oh, there is a gentleness. There is a kindness. There is a delight for us that often uh, we have lost um, an awareness of. And it is in that those sweet moments of of a kind of call back uh, into bearing his honor and his delight. That again, I'm not going to say it makes everything perfect. It just makes it well enough to be able to go, oh, I didn't expect that. Now, who are you? And I think this is, you know, in some sense, the infinite work. We'll be doing this mm-hmm. into eternity. Who are you, God? I mean, yeah. we don't come to an end of understanding and knowing God. No. Uh, and so, <laughs> You know, the great work is knowing oneself in the context of knowing God. I think that kindness and delight is what God was letting me experience in those first two years. I think that really was a barrier for me in my life in the past, especially when we consider either denominationally how we were raised or the spiritual context we grew up in. Perhaps even our thoughts about God as it might come from how we related to our own parents and caregivers and how they related to us and those types of things. However, we might view God very often. There's a distortion when we've experienced trauma. And in those first two years, I really felt like he just wanted me to 
to correct. He wanted to correct that, really. He wanted to invite me, as you said. And it's, he's so gentle about the way that he does these things, though. He knows how fragile and how broken we are. The Psalms say that. And that in his just so easy and gentle way, he shows who he is first. And I feel like that is so critical in the present to see who God is first and allow that relationship to bud before stepping backward into the story, because then we can go back with curiosity instead of fear. Because if we're in the present and we're, we're, we're experiencing God in the present as kind and gentle, then we'll be able to look at our past and look at ourselves past, present, with kindness and gentleness as well. And we can have those unresolved places. We can say, that wasn't okay. And we, we have the ability to rightly look at our past and to have compassion for ourselves. And eventually, we may even find compassion for the people that hurt us, given whatever context and circumstances. But understanding that our present circumstances mean that God brought us out of something and we're getting to experience that delight. But I find that that's that play though, between the present and the past is first experiencing safety and delight with our, with our God in the present so that we can go backward with that sense of safety and delight. It's not going to always be delightful, whatever we're looking at, that's for sure. But then we know we're held and we know all our emotions are held, the, the ups and downs, the happy, the sad, the all of it. And when we're held, then we have the ability to say, you know, through all of these things that I've done or all these things that have happened to me, you did not let go of me. So if I have hard questions for you, you're not going to let go of me. Oh, I love that word safety because it's so central to all good relationships. Mm. And if it's true between you and a friend, you and a spouse, you and a child, it, it, why wouldn't it be true between us and God? Mm -hmm. And and the safety, I mean, how often it says He is our refuge, mm -hmm. He is our bulwark, He is our strong place, He is our rock. Now, I'm not going to doubt that there are many points where I'm going, I don't see it. But the reality is He creates the context for safety to be able to move into danger. Mm -hmm. If we don't have safety, we can't make those steps, as you said, into our past or into our future. You know, I, I'm so reminded of Psalm 131, where it, it, only four verses, the third verse, it says, I know how to comfort my soul like a weaned child. In that sense, God is saying, you must learn how to bring your own heart with me, mm. but with your body, you need to learn how to create safety, comfort, soothing. And again, it's one of those crazy things that for 2,000 years and longer, um, Christians have had a lot of ambivalence, if not contempt for the body. Uh, the spirit is good, the body is bad. Uh, that isn't Christianity. That's not from our faith. That's from what could be called Neoplatonism, uh, a, a philosophical system alongside of the time that the Bible came to be, but it's not biblical. So, we have an incarnate God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And if we don't have a heart for our body in terms of how we honor the need for safety, for care, for nourishment, for touch, we're not honoring the temple. And so, what often happens with people who've been traumatized is many of us have extraordinarily, and this isn't a compliment, extraordinarily high levels of pain tolerance. Mm. We can do a whole lot more than a lot of people. Uh, we can bear a whole lot more than a lot of people. And at some heartbreaking level, we almost become prideful that we don't need as much sleep. We don't need as much food. We don't need as much care as what other people seem to have. And then to stop and go, no, safety honors the temple. And if you're not in a safe relationship, already what I would say is that alone is a violation of your dignity as an image bearer. So, we, we need to calibrate bad theology and then be able to engage a, a psalm like Psalm 131 and say, do I actually know how to soothe my soul mm-hmm. in a way that honors my body instead of distracts or, as we've been putting words to, adds even more complication to the trauma that I'm in the middle of. I think what you just did was set a lot of people free, Dan, because I think we, as you said, have a badge of honor or a pride about being able to squash our needs and overdrive and push through and to have this strong facade We might even believe it. We might not even think it's a facade. We might really identify with that part of ourselves. And that is denying ourselves the very gentleness that God actually shows us that we return to ourselves. And I love that that verse that you quoted there as far as learning to soothe our own souls. When we know the soothing of the Father and the way that He loves us, we're able to return that to ourselves. And I think that that's so essential to this healing process is stopping, slowing down, saying, I have been in survival mode and I needed to be, but I don't need to be anymore. If I'm safe with God, I don't need to do it this way anymore. And I can start turning this love towards myself. And I think that this is extremely critical because it helps us then with walking with our kids well. And I think oh. need is really essential to this entire experience because if we are disconnected from our need, then we're also disconnected from the needs of our kids. If we can't read our own needs well, we can't read their needs well either. Oh, it's, it's again, so important to hear. It is such an obvious sentence. Uh, you know, you think about the times you've been on the plane and heard the statement of, you know, put your own mask on first. Uh, and it's like, if you can't breathe, you're not going to be able to help other people uh, to be able to put their mask on. And and I, I have a nine-year-old granddaughter, uh, and we were sitting, uh, it was a beautiful day in uh, the Seattle area. We were outside. It was a few weeks ago, still winter, but warm enough to sit out. And at one point, she looked at me and she said, Papa, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, uh, do you mean like... Ontologically, darling, or are we talking about more patterns of character and systemic failure? And she's looking at me like, uh, here he goes again. And she's like, she's that, like no. that's what I'm talking about. 
and, and she said, no, you, you, there's something going on for you right now. Mm. And I'm like, darn, wow. I just got outed. Wow. And, and, and I thought I can lie and, and call it good. Um, or I can tell her the truth. And I said, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well right now. I'm, I, I, I feel so sad. I'm so angry about so many things that have been lost during this pandemic and friends who are really not doing well. And there's so little I can do on their behalf. And, and, I, and, and at one point she said, Papa, why aren't you crying? Mm. And I just, I kind of looked at her and went, that's a good question. Because what I'm saying, there is just this, this reservoir of tears that I don't actually want to get too close to. And she, she just sort of, she, she put her, arm, her hand on my shoulder and then scooched a bit closer. And she said, Papa, I can handle this. Aww. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay, I'm, I am being handled really well. And sometimes our children, our grandchildren, to think they don't read you. Mm. I mean, we've got data that four-year-olds, listen to me, four-year-olds can read emotion. They can read motivation. They can read, this is disturbing, they can read when you're not telling the truth. Mm. So, if you think a nine-year-old can't do that. I'm telling you, the research indicates a four-year-old has that discernment. So, oftentimes, we mask and think we're doing well for our children. Now, I'm not talking about dumping on our children, right. you know, massive confusion, heartache, but there is a degree to which we need to let our world know that we are not well that we're going to continue to grow and fight and and struggle but the kindness of my granddaughter at that point i i i saw it very much as the spirit leading my granddaughter to offer me a kindness that was an invitation to repent and in that moment to repent of i need to always look like i've got things under control mm. I have a four-year-old actually. So when you're talking about how much they can discern, I'm like, yeah, I feel like she reads me pretty well sometimes. <laughs> but how profound, you know, sometimes we we super complicate these things though too. Or I mean, they can be super super complicated, but sometimes how God would just work through our kids like that to simplify that there is grief that needs to be entered into. And that it's okay. I think a lot of times we want to model strength for our kids, but I think in the in a in a moment like that, for example, how it is to model being teachable and being able to access the variety of emotions, and to as you said, you know, we're not going to dive into maybe all of that process with them. We're not going to process it with them present, but. Even to, to let them know how special it is that they are able to return care for us where we constantly feel like we are having to be the role model, be the tough one, and do all of the things. But Dan, one, one more thing I want to ask you about is 
In walking with our kids, though, through their trauma, many of our kids are dealing with significant trauma. They may be shuttled back and forth to another household. Another household may not be a safe place to be, exactly. or there may be significant, maybe that person is a, has abandoned them. Maybe they're gone. Um, there's all of these things. So while we have all the pieces of the puzzle and we're able to make sense somewhat of our story, they're still in the midst of the swirling chaos. Mm-hmm. And I know at, at the juncture that they're at very often, they can't even understand everything. If we, even we were to lay it all out for them, they wouldn't be able to understand it. So how is it that we can walk well with them in the process of a story that maybe they're not even yet ready to decode? Yeah. Well, I, a, a dear friend who is a single mom and uh, her husband uh, leaves voluminous pornographic uh, magazines uh, around the house. So when her kids visit, um, they're not just given access, they're virtually given a a, uh, implicit invitation uh, to enter that level of violence. Uh, It is so heartbreaking. And legally, there's nothing she can do. Uh, and the questions that she's raised uh, with the court, uh, obviously, in our day, uh, pornography is not considered to be uh, something that's illegal. So, uh, given that, I mean, she has a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Uh, she has had to have language to deal, again, in a child-appropriate way with the reality of what they are actually being invited to. So, let me again go back to those three words. All trauma leads to fragmentation. It leads to some interior numbing and to isolation. So she's had to say, look, when you're around your dad's magazines, of course, there will be intrigue. Of course, there will be a desire to look. And and you likely have looked. And when you look, there will be something that happens in your body that is actually what God meant for you to feel, but never in the context of what, what's being left for you to look at. And, and, and because it's going to feel good, curious, intrigued, but also scary, it, it's going to feel like you can't bring what you experienced home to talk through with me. So, the fragmentation leaves you feeling like literally broken interior, the numbness, like you can't let yourself experience, and then you isolate in what? In shame. So, with really young children, she's had to go to war on their behalf to deal with things they're experiencing and then help them make plans for what to do when those particular magazines are left for their perusal. So, all I can say is sometimes we've got to enter their fragmentation and and name it. And we've got to enter their numbness and not condemn them for it, but let them know that certain times numbness is a kind of safety. Honor it. But when you come home and you're in a safer place, you can cry, you can scream, you can you can talk about the confusion between the world you're in with dad and the world you're in with me. You don't have to keep it alone in your own heart. So, language of trauma, 
language of the effects of trauma, young children can understand uh, Mm -hmm. and utilize rather than to feel like there is something going on that's wrong with them Mm -hmm. for being in the middle of trauma. I think what I just heard you bring out too is the fact that we need to let them know they will feel shame and this is what it feels like. Yes. These are what the voices are. This is the the thing you're going to hear and you're not going to want to talk to me about it, but I'm going to be here. And then that the second point is that there is a place, a safe place where experiences can be processed in a way that Otherwise, we might say is disobedient. So if you are scared and you want to cry and you want to yell, that we will create a place to contain all of that. But I think we have to get away sometimes from our likelihood to say, oh, this, that's not okay. You know, that's, that's not acceptable, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, and stop looking at these as, Uh, things that need to be disciplined and rather look at them as things that are indicators of what's going on in the child's heart. Oh, well said. I mean, so much, uh, so much bad behavior is actually traumatic response. Mm -hmm. So much of what we see to be problematic, whether it's in school or in terms of relating to siblings or in terms of relating to us as parents or grandparents is actually a trauma response. Now, again, mm. it doesn't mean we excuse and, and like no big deal. Right. But if we begin to have an eye to trauma, then we're beginning to address something of the impetus to mm. this so-called bad behavior that indeed has a chance to alter the behavior because we're right back to the word. It is the kindness of God that leads mm. to repentance. Yes. Not judgment, not attacks, not even plans and behavior change. It is kindness. And this is one of those places where if we then are doing the work, do putting that oxygen mask on us, if we are experiencing God's compassion and we're working through our story and we're offering that back to ourselves, then when our kids are going through a very difficult circumstance, we're able to go, wait, 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 maybe, just maybe they could use some compassion in here. Maybe (laughs) this is really what they need. And that we can start to just walk with them in unraveling this, this complex experience that they're in. Dan, I just am so grateful for all of the wisdom and the encouragement that you've offered in this conversation. At the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? Well, let me start with this. Um, I I look at, even though I don't know you well, um, I look at how you have allowed the heartache of your life um, to bring you to a a stance of saying, hell no, Mm -hmm. hell no, I will not allow evil in any form to continue to have a shaping influence over my life. And heaven, yes, I will use my heartache and my gifts Um, to reveal something about the beauty and goodness of God. And that's what I would want for your listeners. Mm -hmm. You have a hell no. There are things within you that you're meant to slam your fist down on the desk and say, "Not not on my watch, not in my day, hell no. And we are meant to create 
beauty from the ashes uh, of our own heartache. And we are meant to, in some sense, see that death never has the final word. Divorce never has the final word. Loss never has the final word. The resurrection does. Mm. And so, as that basis, we say, what can I build today? What, 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 what kind of cookies can I make today? What kind of plants can I put in the ground today? How can I interact with my neighbor today that brings a, a sense of heaven? Yes. And, mm. and if, if we can ask those questions of one another, what is your hell no? What is your heaven? Yes. And again, not meant to be singular alone, but at least a beginning point. Then I think there is a sense in which we begin to allow the heartache to actually move us to hope. Mm. That is incredible. Yes. Heaven, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Dan, would you tell listeners about your most recent book and your resources and how they can follow you? Well, I just wrote a book uh, with one of my colleagues, Kathy Lorzell, uh, called Redeeming Heartache, where we look at the categories of what it means to be an orphan and a stranger and a widow, but also how our calling is meant to live out what it means to be a priest and a prophet and a queen or a king. So, it is a um, let's deal with trauma, but also let's deal with how trauma has the potential to move us to the very things that we've been talking about today. So, folks can find us uh, on theallendercenter.org, some of our resources and some of our work. We'd love for people to participate in that. Yes. And I just found the book so profound. So, I highly recommend if you're listening, it's just such a beautiful way to understand how we get into that heaven. Yes. And I will include links in the show notes for listeners to be able to find all of your resources, Dan. But thanks so much for spending time with me today. Oh, thank you, Michelle. I, I, I'll, I'll be this blunt to say I'll look forward to being invited back. <laughs> thanks, Dan. If you enjoyed this conversation with Dan, I've got a couple of others you might also like to listen to. Check out episode 101, Story Work, Finding Freedom from the Pain of Your Past with Carrie Garcia. Also check out episode 90, Try Harder, Try Softer, Harnessing the Gifts of Compassion and Curiosity in Trauma Recovery with Auntie Colbert. We'd love to invite you to get involved with the Plus One Parents community. You can join us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. And on Facebook, you can join our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Also, at plusoneparents.org, we are constantly adding new resources related to all of the topics that we cover here on the Christian Single Moms podcast. That's everything from parenting to dating to spiritual and emotional well-being. If you'd like to stay up to date on the new resources as we release them, you can join our mailing list there as well at plusoneparents.org. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.